Hello, you're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Well, please hear your Bibles again this evening and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Just going to read the three verses that we're considering at the present time. So verses 16, 17, and 18 of this fifth chapter. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. We have been taking the time after our studies in Revelation to examine the church that is waiting for the Lord's return. Of course, I believe that was true for all the churches in the New Testament time. They were clearly told that Christ was returning, and they lived in the anticipation of the Lord's return, in the expectation of His return in glory. But there is something particular about the church in Thessalonica with respect to the Lord's return. In the one hand of things, they were again troubled with confusion regarding these matters. Uh, there was certainly a lack of understanding in different areas, and it caused trouble in the church. That's clear in both of the two uh, letters. But it's also worth noting that over in chapter 1 of the first letter, they are explicitly described as a church that has turned from idols, verse 9, to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. And there you see a very explicit reference to this church being a waiting church. But as they wait, it is worth noting that they are waiting in a collective fashion. It is a collective waiting, and not just an individual believer here or there, but the entire church corporately is marked by the spirit of waiting for the Lord's return. You'll see in chapter 5, verse number 12, there's language that describes the structure of the church. Brethren, know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord. And we saw that verse and noted how that verse describes the practice of elders being appointed to rule and to care for the church. And they are those who are over you in the Lord. And so you're seeing this letter being written in terms of New Testament structures, elders, members. And I believe also not mentioned here, of course, the office of the deacon also. And so they're waiting as a church family. The letter addressed to a church, and they're waiting is as a collective church body. Of course, redemption is the bringing of individuals into a unified body. Now, we should never underestimate the importance of that. We often think of, it, of redemption again in very individualistic terms. My sins are forgiven. But the purpose of God is to bring people who are forgiven into a body with Christ as the head, a unified body. And that body is to be marked by the same characteristics and the same conduct. And I said, why am I saying all this? I'm saying that because I do not want you 
to see verse 16, 17, and 18 as merely verses addressed to the individual. These are verses that are addressed to the church body collectively and corporately. And yet so often we look at this and say, I must rejoice, I must pray, I must give thanks. But really, it is the entire church that has been marked by joy and prayer and thanksgiving. Now, that will only happen corporately when the individuals engage and obey the Word of God. But we should still be clear, the church itself as a collective body ought to be marked by these things. And so it should be discernible when people come to our church that they witness joy, that they hear prayer, and they experience a spirit of thanksgiving. That should be true in the church body. It's not enough for us to say we pray at home, rejoice at home, and give thanks at home. It should be true and very much manifested in our collective gatherings. These are church exhortations. Now, again, we took some time last time to consider verse number 16, again, looking at the subject of Christian joy. But I want to go back and just show you how these three verses are linked. So a couple of things just by way of introduction here. First of all, these, these things are linked. They are three commands that are linked. Now, they are linked by the fact that they are to be consistently expressed. If you like, they are linked by occasion. Rejoice evermore. And the word speaks of something that is to be done always. The same as used in Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then you've got the verse number 17. Pray without ceasing. And then verse 18, in everything give thanks. And I suggested last time that those three terms are really just three different ways of expressing the same thing. It's just a literary device to explain the fact that we are to rejoice at all times in every circumstance, that we are to pray at all times in every circumstance, and we are to give thanks at all times in every circumstance. The three things are coming together as a collective body. And I think, therefore, verse number 18, where it says, This is the will of God concerning you, governs all three of these. That's a collective body. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. And so they are linked by way of occasion. But they're also linked in the sense that they overlap. They, they certainly overlap. How do we ordinarily express joy? Well, in prayer and in thanksgiving. That's how we express joy. We've, we've joy spiritually. It's expressed in, in prayers and singing of praise, but also in the sense of, of giving thanks. You see, the things that cause joy, they're the very same things that cause thankfulness. It's the same issues. Now, there are things that you will give thanks for that may be temporary. They may not be as permanent as the spiritual things that give joy. But you still get the idea that when we know spiritual joy for the gospel, for Christ, we're going to give thanks for the gospel and for Christ. It's also worth noting that thankfulness, verse number 18, well, thankfulness, it actually increases joy and stimulates prayer. See, when we engage in thanksgiving, well, that works backwards. We, we therefore realize that there are things for which we ought to rejoice. And you see, these things are so closely interwoven and so closely linked. Thanksgiving also stimulates prayer. Don't forget that. Again, these things, when we, when we thank God for His mercy, that also stimulates our prayer life. You could turn back to the Psalm 116. 
And again, you'll see in this Psalm 116, the words uh, thanksgiving aren't explicitly used, but it's clearly a prayer of thanksgiving. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications, because he hath inclined his ear unto me. He's giving thanks to God particularly because of his mercy when he's been at the, uh, at the very door of death. He's been suffering very greatly, but the Lord has heard his cries. And so as he offers this psalm of thanksgiving, I can put it this way, in Christian joy, what happens? Verse number two, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. I'm thankful for what God has done, and that in turn stimulates prayer. So joy is expressed in prayer and thanksgiving. Thanksgiving increases our joy and stimulates our prayer. And, of course, prayer, well, prayer itself, can be that which produces joy. We're praying for the Spirit of God. And the, for the Spirit is joy. It's also worth knowing that thanksgiving is actually part of prayer. Be careful for nothing, Philippians 4, 6, and everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And so the word that's used for prayer here in verse 17 is the general word for prayer. It's a very all-encompassing word for prayer. But it has at least part of that. It has the issue of thanksgiving also. So these three verses, I want you to see them, please, as verses that are linked. And whilst we took a week to look at verse 16, we're going to look at verse 17 today. Please see all of these three verses as being closely interrelated. It's also worth noting, uh, the second thing by way of introduction, are that these commands relate to our public gatherings. They relate to our public corporate worship. You see, the context of this chapter is very much context of church-gathered assemblies. Verse 26, Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. Now, we appreciate, again, the uh, technology. We can have virtual meetings in this fashion, but uh, we, we cannot greet each other holy kiss uh, down through the Internet way. This is a collective meeting, a gathering of God's people together in the same place where they can greet each other together. You've got also verse number 27. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. Uh, the letter is being read in the presence of the entire church assembly. And so you're seeing words here that are in the context of the church meeting together. It's also worth noting the pronouns that are used there are plural. You'll see various yous that are mentioned. Again, they're all in the plural. And again, it has the idea of these commands coming to the collective assembly. Verse 19 and 20, where it says, Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, are also commands that relate to the church gathering. Prophecy, if you think of Corinthians chapter 14, prophecy occurs in the church assembly as they come together. And so you go back to verse number 16, 17, 18. I'm suggesting to you these are commands that relate to the church as the church comes together. It is our duty to ensure that we rejoice when we meet together in God's house. It is our duty and our responsibility to pray together when we're in God's house. And it is our duty and our responsibility to give thanks in everything when we gather together. And so let's today just briefly consider verse number 17, which again looks at the church as a prayerful gathering. A church 
is a prayerful gathering. A local church is a place where prayer is wont to be made. It's a place where God's people come together and pray. This verse, given what we've seen already this evening, is fundamental to the idea of church prayer times. It blows my mind that there are many churches across this region who never ever meet to have a collective prayer meeting. Now, yes, I understand that on the given Lord's Day, one may lead and all may pray. That happens. You have a leader in prayer. And again, in some churches, they may have several people leading in prayer. That's completely appropriate. That's part of a church prayer time. We pray in that fashion. And just worth remembering that again, that as we come to pray, I'm not the only one praying or one of the elders praying here. They're not the only one praying. We all should be praying at that point. But it's also clear, as we'll see in Acts, that there must be times when people are praying together. The language in Acts only makes sense if the sense is that the entire church is coming with a particular focus to pray together. Not just to hear preaching and to sing, but with a particular focus of praying together. And so Paul tells the church here, pray without ceasing. Now, that does not mean that as a church, we ought to have some sort of prayer rota whereby there are people in this building praying 24-7. And sometimes this idea of praying without ceasing is misunderstood. There are times when we stop praying. We don't pray 24-7. We sleep and we work and we labor. On those occasions, we may have a prayerful spirit, but we're not actually engaging in formal prayer. It's worth noting again that our Lord himself on one occasion is said to cease praying. It's Luke 11, verse 1, And it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of the disciples said unto him, Teach us to pray. And so clearly this text does not mean that there are not special seasons of prayer which come to an end. Rather, the idea is, as I've said already, it is about praying at all times in every circumstance. Praying without ceasing. Praying that happens no matter what the situation may be in the church. You know, these three verses, rejoice, pray, give thanks, they are, again, commending and commanding these things in every occasion, no matter the, the circumstance. But I think the particular sense is going to be, especially when it's difficult to rejoice, especially when it's difficult to pray, especially when it's difficult to give thanks. And in those occasions, make sure that you do it without ceasing. But we do see in this verse then, the church is a prayerful gathering. And I think while we have the command here, we see the example, of course, in the book of Acts. And so I want to turn back to Acts and just very quickly survey several portions in Acts that show us the church gathering for prayer. Beginning in Acts chapter 2. And here I have six, no, five, five separate thoughts to present to you here regarding the church at prayer. And what you see in Acts chapter 2 is, first of all, the idea of prayer as a pattern. It's Acts 2, verse 42. Here, of course, following the working of God in the day of Pentecost, whereby a good number were converted and joined together. We know they come together, verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. 
It is a work of God's grace whereby an unbeliever comes to the place where they trust in God and believe in God. If we are to please God, we must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. And so it is by God's grace that we come to faith, and in faith we then come to the place that we are, we are those who are given to prayer. Now, for, the, for many, many believers, prayer is something they struggle with. It's a spiritual battle. There are ups and downs. There are seasons of strong prayers, times of weak prayers. But each and every believer finds prayer as natural as breathing. They do. So I don't feel that way. Well, well, actually you do. When it comes to the bit that you pray, you pray naturally. You pray out of the heart that God has given you. I'm not suggesting it's easy, but it is something that comes by the work of the Spirit of God. And so when believers come together, they come together as those who are now there for prayer warriors. And when they come together, it's natural then to breathe together, to pray together. I think the impression here is of prayer as a pattern. In other words, prayer even if there is no particular emergency. Now, you may find it hard to believe, but there are some who have argued that there is no biblical warrant for a gathered prayer meeting in terms of a regular weekly practice. There's nothing in the Bible to command a weekly gathering for prayer. And in one sense, I would say, well, that's partly true. It's a, it's a providential arrangement. But they will suggest to you that the prayers in the book of Acts are prayers that come because of a particular situation or emergency. But no! Paul tells the church in Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. And he does so realizing this is the pattern of the early church, that they are given to prayer. Prayer, even if there is no particular emergency. I think it's worth saying to those churches that have such an idea that we'll only pray when there's an emergency, I suggest to them there's a daily emergency in the, work, in the world at this time. There's always a reason for the church to come together to pray. But we pray. We pray at all times as a pattern. I think now it's worth noting that we should pray even, or perhaps especially, when the church is prospering. You know, there are times when the church life is going very, very well. People are coming in, there's growth, there's enthusiasm, there's joy. All of these things are seen. And well, perhaps at that point, the urgency of prayer feels less keenly felt. But in times when the church is prospering, there is a particular need for prayer. Lord, preserve the work. Preserve the work. I spoke to a colleague in the ministry a number of years ago now, and he was describing how a time came when the Lord blessed him with quite a number of conversions in one year. And the church seemed to grow. Some of the children were converted in the church. The outsiders converted. And there was a sense amongst the leadership, and they confessed this, that they really felt, well, we prayed for this. We prayed for this. The Lord heard our prayers. And there was almost a sense of patting themselves on the back that they had seen this accomplished. And what happened next was the prayer life of the church began to fall back. And they had got to a point of prosperity in the work as they saw it. And they had forgotten to pray, Lord, preserve the work that you began. The sense of the ongoing need for God to keep his hand upon the work. Of course, we pray in recognition that every prospering in the work is all of God. And certainly we're always in need of God's grace. So prayer is a pattern even when the church is prospering. But prayer, therefore, is also prayer that is secondly persistent. 
Again, this is just an inference from the previous point. It is persistent prayer. It is without ceasing that we do not be weary in well-doing, but that we endure in prayer. We pray without ceasing in that sense. That needs to be said to a church family at all times. That as a church collective, we realize that it is our collective responsibility to pray together. Remember, this text is talking about church gatherings for prayer. And so whilst there are God's people who are hindered from being in the house of God, we understand that. That's part and parcel of church life. But there must be this sense among the entire body that I am not going to be weary and well-doing in terms of corporate prayer. Otherwise, I perhaps can't make every single prayer meeting, but I'm going to give myself as often as I can to be in the house of God because it is my duty as part of the body to pray without ceasing. Not just at home, but as part of the church gathering. We come together to pray in that sense. Praying that is persistent. And we can, we can run for a while. And we can find ourselves making ground in prayer. And then we get weary. We sit down. And we lose the sense of needing to pray without ceasing. Prayer that is persistent. But thirdly, also prayer when the church considers its purpose. The church's purpose, of course, to evangelize the world, to be missional in focus. Over in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, you have the account of the church there. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Here's a church praying when it considers its purpose. They were told to tarry until they were endued with power from on high. And verse number 8 says this, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. Here's a church praying over its purpose. And so chapter 2 begins, The day of Pentecost has fully come. They were all with one accord in one place. And the implication is, they're praying in one place. And of course, you know the rest of the story. The Spirit of God's poured out upon the church and many souls are converted to Christ Jesus. You see, we pray in light of our purpose. We pray for the Spirit's power. We need the power of the Spirit of God upon us. We still have this same purpose. Oh yes, we may not come in this historical sense of Pentecost, but we need the Spirit's power upon our ministries. And if we lose sight of this, then we'll stop praying. But we'll pray without ceasing when we remember we need the Spirit's power upon the work whether it be in Orlando or Lehigh Valley or here in Malvern. We need the Lord's power upon the ministry. Over in chapter 13, you'll see them praying again. Again, the sense of their purpose to evangelize the world. But this time they're praying in light of the Spirit's purposes. The Lord is putting his hand upon certain men. Verse number two, the Spirit of God comes as they are fasting, and that involves prayer, and says, separate me Barnabas and Saul. For the work whereunto I've called them, and when they had fasted and prayed, there's a church praying, considering its purpose, praying without ceasing. It's also worth noting, fourthly, the church prays together when the church considers their practices. Go to chapter 6 of Acts, Acts chapter 6. For he even another reference to the church praying, this time in connection with the appointment of the first deacons. There are men chosen, seven men. And uh, it says there, verse number 6, "...whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased." 
Okay, and you should remember the context here. There's dispute, there's division because of the widows. And the disciples are distracted and they want to labor in the word and in prayer. And for that reason, they appoint these men to serve the practical needs of the church. But please notice, it is important to pray for our deacons, to pray for their work. In a broader sense, to pray over the practicalities of church life. Praying for those who, who have the duty to attend to the good of the congregation, their material goods, their practical goods. This is vital. It's vital for focused ministry, that the elders are not distracted by these things, but they can give themselves to prayer in the Word, and it's vital for Christian unity in the church. We should give ourselves to pray for our deacons, to pray for God's grace in their lives. So there's prayer as a pattern, prayer that persists, prayer when they consider their purpose, prayer when they think of their practices, and thirdly, finally, sorry, fifthly and finally, prayer when they are persecuted. Chapter 4 and the verse number 23, here we find themselves, they're praying at all times, they're praying in every circumstance, they're praying without ceasing. Chapter 4, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders said unto them. Here's persecution. Peter and John have been persecuted for their ministry in the temple. They find themselves arrested. They're let go. They were told to stop preaching in Christ's name. What do they do? Verse number 24, And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. And so they face trouble in the ministry. They face opposition in the ministry. And what do they do? They don't panic. They don't fret themselves and wonder what to do next. They give themselves to prayer. They're praying without ceasing. You see how relevant this is? That we find ourselves living in days when there seems to be barriers in front of us in every turn. We go here, a barrier, here, a barrier. But we must give ourselves to praying without ceasing in the face of opposition and persecution. And then chapter 5 of Acts, or sorry, chapter 12 of Acts, and the verse number 5, Peter's arrested again, and what do they do? Well, they do the same thing. Prayer was made without ceasing of the church. The entire collective church body giving themselves to prayer in the face of persecution, praying without ceasing. Prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And he goes there. Of course, he's rescued from prison by the angel. And verse number 12, he goes to the door where many were gathered together praying. This church must be marked as a place that prays in all times, in every circumstance. May the Lord help us. May the Lord's help in this. Every command that comes in the Word of God is only possible by the help of the Spirit of God. We cannot do this in our own strength or own resources. We will only do this when the Spirit of God comes upon us. Pray without ceasing. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak. If you'd like more information about the Gospel or the Church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.